Well, let's see, this is the fourth week of this study, and the more I study, the more I realize it's the information out there on millennialism throughout time is just inexhaustible. I mean, it's difficult for me to come up with 30 slides every week, because you could put, you, could, you know, somebody that knows what they're talking about could spend a year in every single one of these periods of time. We did from the early church to Augustine, then Augustine, uh, and through the Middle Ages up to 1500, and today we're going to fit 1500 until now, and then next week we'll look at some millennialism in the Church of Christ, and then maybe compare pros and cons to the major beliefs in, in millennialism in Christianity. There's millennialism spreads across just about all religions. Uh, anyway, uh, what do we do? The first three weeks. Uh, millennialism has been around for millennia. <laughs> the early church, um, through the writings of Justin Martyr, they believed, most of them believed in historic premillennialism. That means Jesus was going to come before a thousand year reign. Uh, the Ro when the Roman Empire was in its heyday, Pax Romana, eternal uh, Rome, they believed, a lot of people believed in imperial millennialism, that imperial Rome was the manifestation of the reign of Christ on earth, thing when things were going good. Of course, later in 410, when Rome got sacked, that kind of went out the window. Uh, when Augustine came around, around 400 AD, uh, his thinking was that, no, this is a spiritual millennialism. The thousand-year reign, Mission of Revelation 20, is a symbolic or allegorical uh, statement. And we're living within the millennialism, that mo millennium. And that's pretty much a millennium. A millennialism. It's hard to say all these words. Uh, and you notice through those first 1,500 years that we covered in the first three weeks, Many, 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 many dates have been predicted up until you know Luther's time with a perfect track record. I got this from Ted last week. Right. They have a perfect track record. Record. They were all wrong. Hundred <laughs> percent wrong. Um, and in every generation, what was going on in current events at that time seemed to be applied to the symbols in Daniel two and seven and Revelation. Uh, very commonly, uh, and prompted millennialist activity. <clears throat> and then I want you to notice, if you haven't already been noticing, uh, the cyclical nature of pre and post millennialism through time. When the future looks bright to a group, then post millennialism, you know, is is the main theory of the day. That means things are getting better in society and they're getting a bit so good that everybody's going to convert to Christianity and then Jesus will come. Jesus comes after the millennium. And then premillennialism when everything's looking rotten, you know, premillennialism pre seems to be the uh, main theory of the day. And then you always got that constant, after constant, uh, Augustine came along, you always got that constant amillennialism which is still the main belief of many churches, especially the Catholic Church, even up to this day. <clears throat> so let's look at Luther. He's one of my heroes of faith. Uh, this guy was depressed. There's very few people more depressed than Martin Luther. 
And the thing, I, when I was reading a story about Martin Luther, Martin Luther, he put a sign on his wall that says, remember your baptism. He felt so sinful. He wasn't going to be part of the saved. Remember your baptism. I've been baptized into Christ. I'm saved. Of course, this is infant baptism. But he's the one that came up with the, 90, the thesis posted on the door, you know, big headache for the, for the Catholic Church, mainly because of indulgences that were being sold, you know, to build more buildings in the Vatican uh, by getting people to give money for, you know, the forgiveness of their sins. Anyway, uh, he believed in Augustine's view uh, that the millennium was what we are living in right now and that Jesus could come at any time, the second coming. And he was apocalyptic about it. And I got Sharon to read a scripture from 2 Peter 3, 8 through 13. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the church. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with the great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works are in it that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, if Luther had a copy of that, no wonder he thought the millennium was apocalyptic or cataclysmic. I mean, what's going to happen there? The heavens just melt away and the earth is going to be burned up and there'll be a the new heaven and new earth. That sounds pretty cataclysmic to me. Uh, he rejected the millennium as a future reign of Christ since Christ is reigning now through his word. So it's somewhat similar to Augustine's beliefs. And Origins, and Clements, and Ambrose, and Jerome's. Augustine wasn't alone in these beliefs. <clears throat> the events of his time dictated Christ's coming soon because the sins of his time were so great, heaven could no longer tolerate them. Wow, he thought he had a bed. He should live in the United States today. <laughs> he said that if it were only unchastity of the kind of the time of the flood or certain worldly sins as Sodom, I would not maintain that the last day would come on account of them. But God's worship, word, sacrament, children, and all that pertains to God have been disturbed, destroyed, condemned, calumniated. I had to look that up. Maligned with the devil being substituted for God. Things were really bad in his day. Uh, the world is ripe for destruction because all hope for improvement has vanished. There's nothing more than the, than the anticipation of the last day which Luther longs for with all his heart. Wow. Does that sound like some of us? Some of us, I think, could probably identify with that. But this was back in around 1500 when he lived. Uh, Luther said that the natural phenomena and the social decrepitude, I love that word, decrepitude, <laughs> in his own day were signs of the end times. <laughs> I think we could probably agree with him 500 years later or whatever it is. 
that both the Pope and the Turks together were the manifestation of the Antichrist, the former working from within the church, the Pope, and the latter from outside and threatening the whole of Christianity. The Turks are really the Muslims, part of the Ottoman Empire, and they were attacking Europe from the southeast, you know, around where Turkey is, et cetera. Um, as we talked about last week, the Muslims invaded southern Europe in 711, and then in 732 they tried to go from the Iberian Peninsula into France, and the French army destroyed them, and that was the end of that. And in the 1400s, about three million Muslims self-deported from Spain and Portugal. It's kind of interesting. I was just there earlier this year, <clears throat> and I didn't see what I thought were a lot of Muslims. I've been in Muslim countries, and I didn't see much evidence of it now, but I think France has a problem with <laughs> Muslim immigration. Anyway, the Turks were and would be a scourge in the hand of God to work repentance and to purify the Christian church. God was using the Muslims back in 1500 to work repentance and purify the Christian church. Luther concluded the Turks would never conquer European Christianity. I don't know, 500 years later, they would never be conquered by European Christianity. I can believe that. Uh, they would always oppress Christianity uh, militarily. And he was in favor of war with the Muslims. <clears throat> but he saved the worst uh, condemnation for the Pope, but only the Pope was considered to be the real Antichrist. Of course, we all know the real Antichrist was Hitler or Stalin or Attila the Hun or you could probably, go, you could probably come up with a whole list. Yeah. <laughs> I won't say what you and I are thinking, Fred. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. <laughs> He said, I was terribly afraid of the last day, but with both the assurance of salvation, remember my baptism, remember my baptism, and the acute awareness he always had of his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of the church, he could write in 1540, come beloved last day, amen. Uh, his computations from Daniel 2 and 7 and Revelation put the return of Jesus to 1540. I guess he didn't get the message that if he could figure it out it was 1540, seems like Jesus could have too. <laughs> so as smart as he was, he still put a date on it. And funny thing is, that date is six years before his death. It's always in my time things are going to happen, right? Because my time is the most important time in all of history. I say facetiously. <laughs> Luther's confrontational behavior and radical theology uh, at least according to the Catholic Church, it's confrontational and radical, contributed to a more populist millennial fervor. Thomas Munzer, Munzer, I went to the pronunciation and it's both ways. Okay. <laughs> and the peasants revolted. There's about 300,000 peasants that revolted. And it was a millennial type of, millennialist type of group all over Germany. There's a map out there with all the battles and everything. Of course, they're poor people. They didn't have AK-47s or M16s like the aristocracy had. So the aristocracy actually killed about 100,000 of these peasant revolters. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that uh, 20 of the leaders escaped and later joined up with the Anabaptists in Munster. 
in Munster in 1533 and, and 35. This is still within. Uh, uh, Luther's time frame. Luther didn't want to have anything to do with Munster. 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 Didn't want to have, he, he thought he was all wrong. The peasant revolt was all wrong. Violence was wrong. Of course, he didn't mind war against the Muslims. That violence was okay, I guess. Um, and the Anabaptists, <coughs> the, the main teaching of the Anabaptists was they believed in, well, pouring or immersion for baptism, not infant baptism, adult baptism. Terrible people. Uh, and they took over uh, Munster. Here's a, here's a picture of the town. And when the aristocracy actually uh, went in there and took over the city and beat, beat them up, they took the leaders of the group and they put them in cages and hung them from St. Lambert's <clears throat> this is St. Lambert right there, home from St. Lam Lambert's Cathedral steeple. And to this day, here's a modern day picture, supposedly, uh, they still have three, three cages sitting up there to represent those the bodies of the leaders of that revolt <clears throat> 500 years later. I don't know, have you been there? <clears throat> Very interesting. Uh, Oh, John Calvin, he also believed in Augustinian teachings, uh, amillennialism basically, that the thousand year reign was symbolic, we were living within the thousand years. But his followers, the Puritans later on, they kind of changed a lot of the doctrines, including his ideas on millennialism. So, uh, during this period of time, Millennial fever, fervor, heightened again during the English Civil Wars when an essentially millennial revolution executed a king. Guess who it was? Charles I. Guess who's king now? Charles III. <laughs> uh, and attempted to put an end to the monarchy for the first time in recorded history. Of course, it was, there was the parliamentarians and the, the royalists fighting back and forth back then. And... Um, a lot of groups, millennial type groups, were invented, incorporated. What's the proper word? Whatever. In the 1650s, one English, uh, the English independents who left the Church of England, hoped to usher in the kingdom of God in groups such as the Diggers and the Levelers. The Diggers actually became the Levelers. The Diggers took their uh, principles from that verse in Acts chapter 2, I think it is, where all the Christians had everything in common. They wanted to impose that, uh, where the aristocracy and the nobles owned most of the land. They wanted to level that out, so they owned as much land, you know, as, as the nobles. And they became called the, de the levelers because they're leveling the land ownership among the aristocracy and the nobles with the peasants. Uh, and the ranchers and the fifth monarchy men, they believed the revolution was necessary to prepare the way for the reign of Christ and his saints. <clears throat> Violence. Well, the, this latter group, the fifth monarchy men, wanted to set up a kingdom of Christ for his a thousand year reign by the saints, them I suppose, by replacing the old kingdoms of the Stuarts with a Jewish Sanhedrin-like parliament of saints, first assembled in 1653. They would make the major decisions in the country instead of some monarch, but there was a statesman 
and a politician and a guy that had an actual army called Oliver Cromwell, who didn't really appreciate that and he pretty much prevented uh, apocalyptic enthusiasm from dominating the Commonwealth by dissolving the so-called Parliament of Saints. There's just so many movements throughout time that have a millennial uh, foundation to them. It's incredible. I, I read through some of this stuff. I get stuff from all over the place. A lot of it's from the Britannica. And I say, what? They had a millennial foundation. I look it up. Yeah, sure enough, they did. Uh, even modern day stuff. <clears throat> anyway, apart from these dissidents, the doctrine of Augustine remained unchallenged until the 17th century. Most Protestant reformers of the Lutheran, Calvinism, and Anglican traditions were not millennialists. Instead, they held to Augustine's theology. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, most mainline denominations uh, follow the same, same beliefs on millennialism as the Catholic Church does, as do most churches of Christ, disciples of Christ, Christian church, the Amish, the Mennonites, you know, most of them uh, follow Augustine's theology. There's, there's pockets here and there where that's not true, but... Augustine's millennial worldview survived the Reformation, but did not survive the intellectual revolution of the 17th century, where the development of science rehabilitated nature. Where did nature get a bad rap? Augustine, in his day, he rejected the world due to his experience of human and natural disaster in his time. His pessimistic view of human nature, I think uh, Augustine and I think a lot alike. <laughs> his pessimistic view of human nature drove his opposition to the idea of progress in human history. We are such deeply imperfect creatures that we cannot hope to bring about the millennial kingdom through our own efforts. It doesn't sound like post-millennialism. Post-millennialism is the idea that things are getting better and better. And we're converting the world to Christianity, and then all the whole world is just following Christ, and all of a sudden Christ returns. And that's, that's the theory. <clears throat> Augustine didn't believe that. Of course, he lived during the time when Rome was sacked, right? 410. He lived 400, died in 430. <clears throat> Uh, by 1600, Europeans had gained confidence in their own abilities. Sounds a little arrogant, doesn't it? Francis Bacon and other philosophers announced the dawn of a new day and attacked the Augustinian reluctance to see anything but the work of the devil in attempts to control or understand natural processes. Pardon? Control the natural processes. Yes. Well, a lot of this, I, today I think, oh, I shouldn't get into it. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> this powerful new direction in Western thought had its origins in the Renaissance, which was, in a sense, the first secular millennial movement in Western history. The Renaissance abandoned apocalyptic and millennial thinking and the superstitions of medieval Christianity. Those people who lived a long time ago were so stupid. Yeah, right. I think we're getting stupider and stupider. How many of us have built a building that has lasted 5,000 years? <laughs> like the pyramids. Anyway, uh, it's easy to look down on people in the past <laughs> and elevate ourselves in knowledge and intelligence uh, 
But is that true? I don't, I don't think that's true at all. Very smart people lived back then. <clears throat> they no longer needed to set a date for the end because the end was already happening. Uh, the old ways of ignorance and restraint were gone and the new age had arrived. You know, you can, you can see what's coming. If the future looks bright, what kind of millennial thought are you going to have? A post-millennialism, because things are getting better and better, and it's going to get so good all of a sudden it's just going to force you to come back right now. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so as science advanced, it was thought that perfection, we were just talking about that before uh, class. Yeah. Ted and I were talking about that before yeah. class. As science advanced, it was thought that perfection could be found in, in a secular kingdom and social utopia instead of an earthly divine one. So... If that's true, this is back in the 1600s. It's got some ways to go, I think. European intellectuals became more interested in measurement and quantification. Uh, medieval interpretation of nature of the heavenly bodies was proved wrong by the use of the telescopes. So if they're wrong about the heavenly bodies, then they must be wrong about everything else. Those dumb people. A new concern with calculation and literalism spread to biblical scholarship and resulted in the creation of progressive millennialism. I remember a series in John Clayton's books, which I, uh, pamphlets that I used to get. It came out like every other month or something. He had a series in there where all the Nobel laureates that believed in God, uh, their inspiration was God himself. God created a universe that they could eventually figure out through experimentation and modern scientific techniques. And uh, a lot of them did. You know, they, because they believed God created an ordered, structured universe, we must be able to figure out certain things, and they did figure out certain things, and these were Nobel laureates. Um, and the, a huge percentage of the Nobel laureates throughout time were God believers. They believed they could actually figure stuff out because God created an ordered universe. But that was a great series. I don't know if you saw it or not. But anyway, so this is the beginning of progressive millennialism. We live in a culture and a society where science is becoming more, more and more advanced, where we are going to progress to a society of utopian perfection. Progressive millennialism, that's a post-millennial uh, theory. <clears throat> Joseph Mead, Patrick Mead's sixth great-grandfather. <laughs> I don't know if they're related or not. Uh, one of our former ministers, Eric. A 17th century Anglican biblical scholar pioneered progressive millennialism. Mead concluded that Revelation did foretell a literal kingdom of God, which would be completed within human history, and Jesus would return after the millennium. That's a post-millennial doctrine. Revelation apparently contained a historical record of the progress of the kingdom. So this was in the 1600s. You could actually go to Revelation and see the history advancing right up to the 1600s. Everything just fit in, fit in perfectly. These Enlightenment Christians emphasized reason and saw the world on a march of progress that had begun with the Renaissance. The progress of history was now continuously upward and the kingdom of God ever closer, but it would arrive without struggle. struggle. <clears throat> so many movements throughout time have been similar, where Ted said it the best. What did you say before class <laughs> about perfection movements and their well, the, striving for perfection? Yeah, the uh, 
the millennial movements were seeking perfection. Yeah. And they were from whether they're seeking seeking a new Eden almost or and, uh, or a new uh, a new society, communism for instance, a paradise for the working people, uh, Nazism, the thousand year right, for all millennial movements. Yeah. Man, you just went through the, my next. You went through my next five slides. <laughs> yes. Can you say? Can you repeat? Or can you repeat what he said? Yeah, he was saying there's so many movements throughout time that uh, we're striving for a perfect society, uh, and he mentioned a couple of them: communism and Nazism. You know, the Thousand Year Reich. Uh, they had millennial undertones, or maybe even overtones, but. That's what these people thought in the, in the 1600s. We got science now. We're not like those stupid, superstitious, uh, uh, non-telescope-using medieval-type people. Now we know what's going on here. You know, we've arrived. Things are only going to get better as we discover more and more things, and we're going to create an Eden, a, a utopian society. <clears throat> so many movements throughout time have been like that. Uh, these uh, progressional millennials became dominant in, in many Protestant churches in the 18th century, 1700. The American Puritans were also uh, interested in the millennium, especially Don Jonathan Edwards. If you read anything about his sermons, he was a hellfire and brimstone type preacher. <clears throat> I guess a very charismatic, eloquent type guy uh, who adopted progressive millennialism and discussed this in his History of the Work of Redemption. Edwards believed the discovery and settlement of the New World had millennial implications. Ah, discovered the United States. The United States, oh, this is a new new experiment in humankind. We're going to create a perfect society, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is a progressive millennialism. And he anticipated the establishment of Christ's kingdom sometime near the end of the 20th century. Well, that was 23 years ago, right? <clears throat> His work also triggered the first Great Awakening. That's what Steve was talking about last week. Um, a revivalist movement in the United States that manifested many of the millennialist traits of the medieval peace assemblies. Uh, the millennialism of the Great Awakening was also part of the general trend in American history that originated with the Puritans and would influence the American Revolution. God has destined us for greatness. And etc. Uh, the rabble rousing sermons, that was Jonathan Edwards himself, that were preached from the pulpits of colonial America in the 1770s were grounded in apocalyptic millennialism. And this, this author thinks had a, uh, quite an impact on our revolutionary movement, revolutionary war. <clears throat> The millennial element was also strong in the 17th and 18th centuries in German pietism, and it played a major role in the doctrines of many sects that arose in the 19th century in the United States and Great Britain, such as the Irvingites. The Irvingites were the pre-Pentecostals. Speaking in tongues, I doubt they handled rattlesnakes, probably couldn't find any, but... Uh, the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Christadelphians, kind of like the Philadelphians. The Philadelphians, the city of brotherly love, where everybody loves their brother, but nobody else. <clears throat> I heard that when I was driving through Philadelphia one morning on the radio. Good morning, Philadelphia. 
where everybody loves a brother, but nobody else. <laughs> Christadelphians, kind of an interesting side uh, restoration movement. They're right along with and in with Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone, uh, but they had a few weird beliefs, and Alexander Campbell had many debates with the starter of, of the Christadelphians, John Thomas. Uh, they didn't believe in the Trinity. They didn't believe that Jesus was divine. He was truly the Son of God, but he wasn't divine. They didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. I don't believe that either. But uh, it's kind of a offshoot of the Restoration Movement. And today they say there's still about fifty thousand Christadelphians around the world, which fifty thousand doesn't sound like much. But interesting group. Um, in the 19th century, the association of the millennium with the role of the United States in history led the fires of nationalism and manifest destiny. Remember manifest destiny from your ninth grade history class? We'd, we were destined to move across the country and take everything and make it all you know, one big country. <clears throat> a leading Presbyterian minister of the 1840s, Samuel H. Cox, told an English audience that in America, the state of society is without parallel in universal history. I really believe that God has got America within Anchorage and that upon that arena, he intends to, intends to display his prodigies for the millennium. <clears throat> uh, during the American Civil War, for example, in the Battle Hymn of the Republic, anti-slavery writer Julia Ward Howe described God's truth as marching on and trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. This progressive millennialism where we are destined and and actually authorized by God to, you know, do wonderful things. Our great society, American society, is going to be the ultimate utopian society ever created, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, is it? Uh, and then <clears throat> the social gospel movement of the late 19th century demonstrated more clearly that continuing influence of progressive millennialism. I should backtrack a little bit. Uh, Alexander Campbell died in 1866. It's right after World War II was ended and Lincoln was shot. He, Civil War. What did I say? Uh, yeah, I meant Civil War. <laughs> one of those wars. Well, yeah, one of those wars. The Civil War. Uh, and he he was a post-millennialist, along with everybody else. You know, this everything's going great. You know, it's, it's a great country. We're destined by God, given this great country, to do wonderful things and. Hopefully we can bring out a bring forth a great society, and there we'll have the return of Christ and His har harbing, millennial harbinger uh, paper was really about all that. But at the end of his life, I told you last week, all nine of his daughters and his wife died of consumption, and his most prominent prominent son drowned in a farm pond. So only had one son left. And with the results of the Civil War, he became quite pessimistic. And I doubt on his deathbed he was believing that was going to happen. But that's just him. You know, as we're moving on, the social gospel, there's, I put a little picture in there. It says, uh, most settlement house workers were college-educated women. Many believed in the concept of the social gospel, the idea that faith should be expressed through good works. I think we can believe that. Uh, these people believe churches had a moral duty to help solve social problems. But there's a utopian society if you'll only 
you know, abide by these precepts of, social, of the social gospel, you know, we can create a utopian society, especially in the United States, where God has given us the right to command the destiny to become, you know, the great utopian society. <clears throat> uh, even down in World War One, check me out, make sure I'm saying the right words. <clears throat> uh, Woodrow Wilson's Making the World Safer Democracy kind of implies that, you know, we, we can help the rest of the world meet these same utopian goals, etc. Uh, according to the progressive millennialists, Christ's second advent would occur at the close of the millennium as its crowning event. And as a result, their position has been called post-millennialism. Well, by accepting the progress of science, however, progressive millennialism, post-millennialism, watered down its commitment to the Bible. There's always pros and cons to everything. Uh, theories of geologic and biological evolution, which called into question the validity of the, of the Bible's account of creation, further weakened the biblical foundation of post-millennialism. So we see a starting a uh, swing the other way, maybe. And scientific progress also called into question chronological millennialism, which we've been discussing for the last three three weeks. How many times did we AM one, AM two, AM three? calculating all these different dates based upon the creation of the world, when Jesus is going to return, you know, the sabbatical millennial, um, which since Anglican Bishop James Usher's work in the 17th century had identified Jesus' birth at 4,004 a.m. Uh, and therefore uh, expected the sabbatical millennium to occur at the end of the second <laughs> Christian millennium in 2000. So yeah, that'd be about 6,000 years later. <clears throat> In response to this anti-biblical post-millennialism, John Nelson Darby and the Plymouth Brethren came up with a series of dispensations or periods of time which God interacts with humanity according to an evolving set of rules. And I listed those during the first week, and we're living, we're living into the next to the last dispensation, uh, of, you know, the gospel dispensation or grace right now, and then the coming dispensation would be the uh, reign of Christ. <clears throat> uh, the most recent dispensation had begun after the crucifixion would end with a rapture and the seven-year tribulation described in Revelation, during which the Antichrist would come to tempt even the saints. And then the Battle of Armageddon would follow, resulting in the victory of the celestial forces, the return of Jesus, and the establishment of the millennial kingdom. So this is, there's always swings in history, you know, you go from this end to this end, you go back and forth. And through history, like I said before, if, the, if you think the future is bright and we're going to create a utopian society, you're probably a post-millennialist. If you're living in a period of time where everything's looking down like it's going downward, you're probably going to be more premillennialist, <clears throat> which means Jesus will return and reign for a thousand years. Things are just so bad. The only thing that can fix it is a cataclysmic and imminent return of Jesus Christ to, you know, uh, save us all uh, and be victorious. <clears throat> this premillennialism says the world is too evil to carry out, even with the divine guidance, a plan for the millennial kingdom on earth. Only divinely wrought catas uh, catastrophe and the direct intervention of Jesus could bring the victory of God's truth. As a result, 
Premillennial dispensationalism rejects progress as a snare of the devil and calls for a return to the fundamentals of true religion, belief in inerrancy of scripture and the necessity of believers to maintain their faith and morals. And that scripture you read, Sharon, it said, and what people should you ought to be knowing all this, that Jesus can come like a thief in the night and destroy the heavens and the earth and hold people accountable. We ought to be living upright, godly lives and be, be alert like last, last week's scripture said. Uh, Premillennialists await the catastrophic hand of God and seek to win as many people to Christ before the rapture as they can. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, most Baptists and non-denominationalist evangelicals uh, to this day believe in uh, dispensational premillennialism. <clears throat> but I didn't, I didn't read anything about this kind of stuff. And even the, tying it, we'll see, go to the next one. Oh, tying it to the return of uh, the state of Israel until <clears throat> this period of time, there wasn't anything else I could see in history that, that uh, equated to that, put it that way. Oh, and uh, Ted mentioned the communistic movements, even though they were they're very secular, the anti-God, et cetera, et cetera, they have millennial type of undertones. Uh, and the precursor movements are somewhat millenarian, millenarian, millenarian because they advocate millenarian prophecy and communistic land reform. Sounds like the diggers and the levelers in, in England. Uh, I don't think they are millennialists because they believe in Revelation 20. They're millennialists because they think they can create, like Ted said, a utopian society, you know, the elevating the worker to the same level as, you know, everybody else, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> and then Nazism, I got this from the historian David Reddles. After World War I, German citizens sought relief from the political, economic, social, and cultural upheaval. You know, they were crushed in World War I. Uh, with promises of order, prosperity, community, Hitler fulfilled a spiritual need on behalf of those who converted to Nazism and thus became not only their Fuhrer, but Messiah and the promise of a thousand-year Reich, which just means realm. And he called it the Third Reich because <clears throat> the Holy Roman Empire and then the current German state and now this new, new uh, Reich or realm would come into being for a thousand years. Millennial uh, sentiment was central to the rise of Nazism and that Hitler's apocalyptic prophecies of a coming final battle with the so-called Jewish Bolsheviks, <laughs> one that was conceived to be a war of annihilation, was transformed into an equally eschatological final solution, which means six million people lost their lives, right? <clears throat> Those Jewish Bolsheviks. <laughs> <clears throat> so, post-World War II, millennial philosophies spread in the aftermath of World War II, leading to the late 50s and 60s, a new wave of radical progressive reform. This was especially evident in the United States where the civil rights movement uh, strove to fulfill the millennial promises of equality. Now we're getting into times that we lived in, uh, in the mid-60s. <clears throat> uh, Johnson <clears throat> and the civil rights movement. This idealism was further fueled by anti-war activism, interest in liberation 
theologies. And the most recent, one of the most recent uh, mentions of this is, you remember Reverend Wright's church that Obama went to in Chicago? Liberation theology places uh, squelching oppression and uplifting the poor above the gospel message. It's more important the gospel message than all Bible theology should be interpreted based on liberating the oppressed as opposed to the advancement of Jesus and the gospel. <clears throat> kind of weird. Anyway, uh, drawn from both Western psychology and East, East Asian religion, psychedelic drugs, rock music, and a back-to-nature communal movement christened the Age of Aquarius. In 69, I was building tennis courts up in New York and Maine and New Jersey. I heard that Age of Aquarius song 400,000 times along with hair. <laughs> and I wasn't one to really listen to it. Somebody else had it on. This is the summer of 69 when, when man landed on the moon. Uh, peaked in 68, 69 with a series of largely student uprisings risings around the world. Well, I remember that so well, even though I was at Harding. Harding wasn't immune to that nonsense going in, on in 1968. Uh, <clears throat> from Los Angeles to Paris, that culminated in the Woodstock Festival in upstate New York in the summer of 1969. Movements aiming towards perfection and utopia. We can bring it about with this, that, or the other thing. <laughs> and let's see, at the same time, the assassination of the United States during the mid to late 60s, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X brought more violent forces to the fore, including the Weathermen faction of the Students for a Democratic Society and the Black Panthers. I didn't do a lot of research into that. I remember all this stuff from the news because I lived through it, but it's like I said before, as I'm going through this stuff and you go do a deep dive into any one of these groups, you find for most, all of them so far that I've done a deep dive on, a millennial undertone. Uh, and exactly what Ted was talking about. Millennialism fragmented into a wide range of post-apocalyptic and pre-millennial sects. You remember uh, the uh, Worldwide Unification Church, the guy from South Korea, he was born in 1920. Unfortunately, he thought he was the second coming of Christ. Sun Myung Moon, they called him the Moonies. Unfortunately, he died in 2012. I don't know if that church is still going, but... And we, we, I showed you a picture a few weeks ago of Jim Jones, People's Temple in Guyana. That was November 18, 1978, when 918 people committed suicide down there in Guyana. Remember that so clearly on the news. I can picture the newscast for these things. And Heaven's Gate in California, remember that group? That was a millennial group as well. They, the way they wanted to achieve immortality was, you remember that movie Cocoon? Uh, what was it? Uh, keep coming. Some of the older guy played in that. Anyway. Opie was the director. Ron Howard yeah. was the director of that movie. And they were going to escape with the aliens to another planet where they had become immortal. That's exactly what this group believed. <clears throat> Until in 1997, the sheriffs from San Diego County went into the building and found 39 of them committed suicide. <clears throat> I think like some comment was supposed to come over and 
Some alien spaceship is supposed to rescue them, take them off. They become immortal, just like that movie, Cocoon. <clears throat> Don Amici. That's who I was trying to think of. Well, Hugh Cronin was also. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yes. yes, yes. <laughs> um, and led to the rise of rapture premillennial scenarios described in Hal Lindsey's The Light Great Planet Earth, and he had a sequel as well. I read them both back in the early 70s. It was 50 years ago. And reflected in the first of a series of rapture movies, Thief in the Night, 1972. <clears throat> and Pat Robertson, who recently passed away, and Oral Roberts, and Hal Lindsey. Hal Lindsey, I saw him speaking the other day on a YouTube cast. He's still alive. Pre-millennial dispensationalists became more excited about an imminent rapture. Of course, it's 50 years ago. Uh, they created an unprecedented alliance. Now, this is something new. It's the first time I saw it in history. Um, of millennial currents in Judaism and Christianity when it linked up with the Messianic religious Zionism that wanted to build a third temple, which also implies the restoration not only of the temple, where there's there's a Muslim mosque right there now, but uh, but the reinstitution of the priesthood and sacrifices and, and stuff like that. This action triggered apocalyptic prophecy among Muslims who saw their Dome of the Rock, the oldest existing Muslim shrine, threatened by such an alliance. In the 1980s and 90s, other millennial sometimes violent sects emerged, including the Order of the Solar Temple and in Canada, France, and Switzerland, not just the United States, where we have people committing suicide and doing weird things. It's everywhere. Uh, their goal is to prepare for the second coming of Christ by unifying Christianity and Islam. I don't think they've been too successful yet. And then, I don't know how to say that Japanese word, but the AUM Shinrikyo in Japan, uh, they're reorganized as the Aleph. There's still information about that out there. Uh, their goal is to restore original Buddhism, but they employed Christian millennialist rhetoric. And then starting in the late 1980s, Edgar uh, Wisenant's 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988, significantly 40 years after the creation of the State of Israel, the premillennial dispensationalism became increasingly prominent in the United States and Latin America. <clears throat> and then the Y2K millennium. We know there's something magical about the even numbers. 500 was the AM1, Anno Monday 1. Eusebius and others came up with the year 500 is when Christ was going to return. And then year 1000, great, a lot of great millennial activity. Uh, you know, disregarding the fact that all the calendars were way off by a bunch of years anyway, and even our calendars off by a bunch of years. I was part of the problem. For 25, 30 years, I programmed, you know, stuff in computers. We had very limited memory. We couldn't store the year. Every byte counted, and that's two bytes per date, times billions of dates that you had to store in a computer. You just couldn't store the year. So after went to zero, zero, Computer would, wouldn't know, was it 1900, 2000? I didn't know what it my, I remember my boss coming in one day and said, Ken, your job for the next few weeks is to go through all our systems and see how the Y2Ks are going to impact our systems. And if there's any problems, I want you to list it, and I want you to start fixing them. <laughs> there's like 
thousand universities in our country that use our system, you know, administrative system. So it's going to be a big impact. But uh, anyway, that added to the mis the magic of the year 2000. Everything was going to fall apart, you know. And there was how many people predicted? Uh, John Edwards uh, predicted somewhere around 2000 that Jesus was going to return. And then who who came up with uh, AM3? 2048 is another period of time when, uh, based on the creation of the world, when Jesus is going to return. Uh, anyway, millennial meltdown. I remember that vividly. <laughs> so, uh, what's ahead? Global events that we're living in right now, threat of World War III, hear that on the news all the time, uh, have created uh, gr uh, ideal co uh, conditions for a new wave of millennial movement. Now, just what they're going to be, who knows? I mean, many believe certain current events are signaling an imminent return of Christ and the thousand-year reign. And we start off with Luther. Things were so bad in his time, God could not wait another moment. The sin was so bad that he'd have to come in 1540. Uh, Martin Luther was a great man, I think. A very intelligent man. So next week I'm going to kind of sum it up. What have I learned? I started off three weeks ago saying I picked this topic because I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> My dad was a Church Christ minister for six years. I never heard him talk about it. Went to Harding, never heard one thing about it. I uh, went to the same high school that Jim McKenzie went to, I never heard a thing about it. So I needed to learn something about it. And so next week I'm going to sum up as well as I'm going to... There's a great article by Edward Fudge, who I think is one of the better scholars in the Churches of Christ. I know. He was an elder of the Bering Street Church of Christ in Houston for a long time, and he's written some really scholarly work. He's got, an article about the history of millennialism in Church of Christ. I want to go over that, and then I want to talk about the pros and cons to the premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism, and then get you, you know. And I don't care what anybody believes on it because I I actually believe that verse I quote every week, Matthew 16. He that believeth and is baptized and has the right view on millennialism shall be saved. <laughs> And the right view is always my view. <laughs> well, I, I can say that. And I told you three weeks ago, I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> so I wanted to, I didn't want to do what so many uh, writers that I've discovered throughout time, they go through Daniel's 2 and 7 and, and Revelation, they tie the current events of their time to all those symbols in there, and they multiply it all out and they figure out a date. Because I know that can't be right. Because Jesus could have done that. You know, if you could calculate it from Scripture, Jesus could have done that. But yet Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back. So I assume you can't do that. So why bother even trying to do that? You know, calculate that all out and try to come up with a date. Anyway, what, what's your questions and comments? Well, I'll throw something out. Uh, that, uh, there's, there's a great movement in this country uh, which is make which leads uh, that would they would lead you to believe that the United States is the perfection that God is seeking, and through the proper through our government, 
everything will happen right. Well, well, two things to remember. One, uh, well, all politicians lie because they need them out. Two, uh, it is that Satan controls this world. Three, politics is about power, raw power, nothing else. And so don't put your faith in liars, in us, better uh, you like workers for Satan, and just uh, isn't. Don't put your trust in government. It will always let you down because it's not the line. I told Ted to speak up because he always has something to tell us. That sounds exactly like what Augustine would say. You lived yeah. at the near the end of the Roman Empire, and everybody thought the Roman Empire was the ultimate utopian, political, imperial, millennial government manifestation of Christ on earth. And then when it fell, I mean, he said it basically which, what you did. You know, we can't put our faith in a political regime. Even though the emperor became a Christian, Constantine became a Christian in the 300s, and the Holy Roman Empire, it was a, it was a merging of Christian emperors and the pope, don't put your faith in politics. And exactly what Augustine said. You, you and Augustine. Well, in that point. In that point. That point. Now, other points, I don't know. <laughs> in that point. I don't believe much else of you. In May of 2011, Harold Kemp Kemping predicted that the world was going to end on May 21st. We had an end of time garage sale that we. <laughs> obviously didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Had a good grudge though. So then you had to go back and buy that stuff again. <laughs> <laughs> no, we were just in Mexico. So you know, I seriously wonder if maybe he already came, took around, look around, and left. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. The rapture occurred. We are the left behind. Ooh. I just think that <laughs> things would get so much better if people would stop turning their back on God. Oh yeah, especially in this country. Yeah. I mean, it, there used to be a lot of Christianity in this country, and it's getting to be less and less and less and less. And we're turning our back. When I say we, I'm. I know. As a college friend. Well, it was kind of going the way of Europe. You go to Europe and you visit a church over there. They don't have services on Sunday. I mean, all those great cathedrals. All those great cathedrals are museums. That's exactly right. I know. I visited quite a few of them in February when we were over there. A lot of the kids, I say kids, young men in their 40s, 50s, they they do not believe in corporate worship at all. They believe in God. She talked about her in Germany. Oh, in Germany, oh, okay. Around her family. Yeah. Oh, okay. They and, all. Yeah, my nephew, nephews, one of them doesn't even go. The other nephew is, I don't believe in corporate worship. None of my family goes to church. None of them. And it really bothers me that they need to straighten up and fly away. <laughs> and I tried to get my sister to do that, but she, I didn't speak enough good German. 
have a really good conversation with her. And so. Well, you've led Ken to believe that you speak perfect German. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, minds. Minds. <laughs> I know how to pronounce them. I just don't know how to, the grammar part. Yeah. Okay, well, have a good week. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.